0: Hey, welcome to the Africa Podcast. My name is Mikey Mahanna. On today's episode, we feature a conversation with Khaled Metawa, who is a professor of poetry at the University of Michigan. We talk about his early years in Libya, moving to the States, his work as a translator, and some of his poetry. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much. Welcome everybody. I'm very honored to introduce our special guest. Professor Khaled Mtawaa currently teaches in the Graduate Creative Writing Program at the University of Michigan. He is the author of five books of poetry and a critical study of the Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish. Um, Khalid has co-edited two anthologies of Arab American literature and translated several volumes of contemporary Arab poetry, Arabic poetry. His awards include the Academy of American Poets Fellowship Prize, the Penn Award for Poetry and Translation, and a MacArthur Fellowship. Uh, Khaled, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to Afikra Conversations.
1: Thank you, I'm delighted to be with you. Unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to look at a lot of what you do at Afikra, but it's really impressive. So this is a fantastic forum, and I'm glad to be part of your conversations
0: thank you so much. Um, it's uh, the pleasure is ours. Mm-hmm. So you are currently calling us from Michigan, um, but you were born in uh, Baghazi, Libya. Um, mm-hmm. Let's start biographically a little bit. Um, you grew up in Libya. Uh, that's a f- These are photos of you, um, sepia <laughs> fo- photos of you. Um, what was it like growing up in Libya in the, yeah. the late 60s, early 70s? Um, and yeah. uh, I guess, yeah, late sixties, early seventies. Um, and when did you first start caring about writing, literature, poetry?
1: Um, <clears throat> I don't really have memories. I was born in nineteen sixty four, but really a, a very stunted uh, memory. My, I remember. I remember the coup, nineteen sixty nine coup. I would have been five then. I remember uh, my pair my father and uh, uncle, and lived next door, and uh, not going to. Um, not going to work. I remember a wedding maybe a year before. Uh, so it was, we, we lived uh, two families, uh, the extended family kind of next to each other. Uh, so a lot of cousins, very much part of the, the memory uh in uh so it was in that kind of milieu in later years it was sort of more becoming became more uh more aware of sort of the nuclear family if you will uh and sort of uh because people have moved around but essentially it was cousins and uncles and uh and relatives and people coming in i had a, my grandfather was sort of a prominent figure and it was there were always people coming to visit him and uh, so the house was always sort of a uh, in a in a hosting mode at least the uh, the, the big house uh so so i, I guess it's a, compared to what children have today um very the afternoon as a child in Libya as a boy particularly uh you really were kind of on your own uh you just had to come home by sunset and I'm sure that's the experience of a lot of of people so uh, a lot of soccer a lot of uh, walking around wandering around uh it was yeah it was uh there was a safe but as it, it was also there's a kind of an undertone of fear not so not political but there was a I remember being trying to sort of, you know, by the age of nine, I was sort of, sort of innocence was being sort of dissipated, and I, and I just like, mm, this is not a very. I have to be careful. Uh, I have to be more, uh, not go this way, or not go to that place. But so, so there is some of that. Uh, but as you can see from the picture of. Uh, the 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 three males my father being in the middle uh uh me uh, on his right so i'd be on the left of the picture and my brother Abraham, is the older uh, uh we're uh, this is it's kind of um, i i like the fact that we weren't asked to smile in that picture and um and as you can see i was a, a child dressed in a coat bigger than his size and uh, curious cautious uh you know, uh, alert. But uh, you know, uh, I would. I think that cat captures sort of my my <laughs> my job, in that I was I was very curious. I I broke up a lot of uh, people's uh, adult stuff, like if there's a suitcase or a radio or something. I was there to to mess it up. They used to call you mechrab, you know, somebody who ruins things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that curiosity, and of course, the it's the face of somebody who's been caught having broken a beautiful pen or a little transistor radio yeah. or whatever. The very uh,
0: very active eyes. <laughs> yeah,
1: and uh so that was a, uh, the picture is the, the I think the only studio picture that uh, uh we took together. The studio is called Studio Isam. I remember. The guy who owned it, I think he had a sixth finger, which is not an uncommon phenomenon in earlier times. <laughs> People had all sorts of features. Uh, but yeah, so um, so uh, I, I think it was the pictures for passports perhaps, and then it uh, moved into why not take a picture of all three of you, and he couldn't get us to smile. Uh, uh, maybe a little more serene pictures with uh, my sister, Sania. I remember this picture very well. That picture also became part of a passport. I had that passport. I used it until I was 24 with that same picture. Until it, I lost it, essentially, well, because I, I we weren't
0: that, able. Yeah, uh,
1: I have to we, say, we, you
0: look just like that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we weren't tell, able. After I came back to the United States, it was very funny. I came back to the, in 1979. I applied to uh, to with that with that picture of that same face. Uh, to come to the United States, I would have been 15 with an English language institute, and then a relative said, "Oh, you listen! I just tore up that passport, and he gave me a new passport." But you know, there was no way uh, I was going to apply to the American uh, embassy with a new passport. So I took both of them and came to uh, and came to the United States. But the other one was not going to be usable, so it was yeah. me at the age of twenty three looking as an eleven year old boy. Uh, and the, and it, all the renewals of the passports were done by relatives we knew in the United States. We were so afraid of being in touch with the with the Libyan government in the early eighties that, uh, you know, and there were people, Libyans milling around saying, I can renew your passport so that you could send it to a, a friend of a friend and he would stamp it and renew it. And uh, we operated in that sort of unofficial world for for a few years. So that's the picture I carried around the world uh, for, for a long time until the passport uh, was lost, uh, 1986. Yeah. yeah.
0: I, wanted, I, w- I want to talk about um, just briefly before we get more deeply into, into your work that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, 1979, you, you moved to the States, the South, Louisiana, um, mm-hmm. and you go through this process of, of relocation and mm-hmm. um, maybe even re identity. Um, mm-hmm. Who were you a teenager? I mean, teenagers in the mm-hmm. late 70s, early 80s in the States throw themselves into rock and roll, throw themselves into Mm -hmm. uh, sports. Um, Were you interested in literature, into poetry at the time? Were you throwing yourself into that? Or were you, you know, what did you do? How did you find yourself?
1: Well, I, I came and I studied with college students. I studied English with college students for a whole year. So my whole sort of coming in was not really to go into a teen world. I went into a more adult. word. Plus, I didn't come with my family. My brother was here, my cousins. So the idea, Libyans have been sending young boys to study, meaning teenagers, to study in Egypt and so on. During the Italians, the Italians didn't really want to educate Libyans. So Libyan families who could afford it sent their boys to study in Egypt throughout the 20s. And so uh, when my family was in Egypt for a while, they received Libyan uh boys to who studied in egypt i had a relative who actually he was like a boy snatcher he would go to these families and he would say give me your boy i want to make take him to egypt so that he gets his high school diploma and they would argue with him for days and days and he would come back to egypt with like five or six teenagers and of course they owed him their their so that story of sending the boy to get an education and for that boy to become uh An adult sooner, that was the scenario. So I went in and I found myself with college students, some of them master's degree students studying English. So it was my first year in Mississippi was a very adult year. And of course, I was a pop 40s Casey Kasem kind of listener. And then I go to this boarding school. And I bring a poster of the Bee Gees to hang in my dorm room, and that was like the I was you know was like what are you doing? You should be listening to Led Zeppelin and Rush, and you know Jimi Hendrix and all of that stuff. Uh, That uh, Bee Gees poster lasted for four months, and then of course I began to open up and listen to. uh, I never liked Rush, uh, you know. Sorry, uh, friends or (laughs) Rush or all the heavy metal, but uh, you know my my. Tastes widened, uh, began to read because my English level was not at that proficient. They put me on a sort of the lower literary uh, level for the first year. But then I remember reading Faulkner and reading uh, Walker Percy, who was a modernist uh, from that part of Louisiana where I went to high school. So reading what became part of my my life uh, right away. And uh, But I never thought I'd be a writer. That came in. May, you know, uh, late of my college years, or when I was twenty-three, is when I thought, oh, maybe I could actually write.
0: Yeah, because you know, as I was prepping for this interview and sort of preparing the slides, um, mm-hmm. I was interested to see that your undergraduate, like a like a a good a good immigrant mm-hmm. child and a good uh, Arab Arab child, was in uh, was in electrical engineering or something like that.
1: No, it was in uh, economics. I tried to do architecture. I couldn't. I was in architecture, business yeah. major. I took the accounting class twice and barely scraped by for a D with a D. And I was like, I divorced myself from business with those D two D's from (laughs) accounting. It was not going to happen. But, but because I, there was one semester where I had like six courses. It was like uh, three A's sociology, English, and uh, history or whatever. And then. Uh, D in economics, uh, you know, uh, calculus, D, whatever. There was like, like a clear, the path was was clear that I was not going to be scientifically oriented. And so I just switched over to political science and then economics was manageable uh, later on. I, yeah. I guess uh, it, uh, an important writer for me at that time was V.S. Naipaul. And uh, and of course, that Malcolm X book was very important. I loved to read. Naipaul was a kind of a, a key read, even though he's kind of hostile to our part of the world. I just loved how he depicted so many parts of the world and it got into my head that I could actually be a journalist or a sort of, uh, you know, a roving uh, writer who's uh, going around the world and telling, and telling the world like, you know, as it is, uh, because, you know, living in America and you knew yeah. the news, still did. Uh, I I never really think about it all the time, but actually the conflict in Central America, the the Reagan hostility to uh, that part of the world, the American arrogance was part of my uh, growing consciousness or political consciousness, I was clearly supporting nicaragua and you know other revolutionaries in el salvador against reagan and so that was part of my if i were only to go around the world and tell these stories so that was the where the ambition of being a writer came from not with poetry but again uh travel journalism uh you know and that's part of it is because i couldn't leave the united states i had a visa that was not going to be renewed so in a sense yeah. the 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 travel angst came from the fact that you were kind of cooped up in the united states waiting for you know the next thing to come
0: so you know on the screen for those who can't see the screen and, and our, the podcast later um you know i have this sort of like collage of all these folks who you've mentioned as being influential influential one way or another mm. um and the only the only person who wrote in arabic on the screen is mahmoud darwish um, and I sort of put him up there because I wasn't sure if he if he did influence your early poetry. But I'm curious if I was speaking to the 22 year old or 25 year old um were there any Arab poets who you grew up listening, uh, listening to their poems because they were spoken in the house? Were you familiar with Arabic poetry growing up or was that a uh, an art form that you acquired as a young adult?
1: Mostly acquired. I mean, there were. Uh, I mean, I must say that the, the the people who worked in the radio stations before it became uh, taken over by Gaddafi, uh I, you know, you could actually listen to a, a few hours of radio in the late '70s or mid '70s in Libya and listen to uh, poetry presentations, uh, uh, short stories. The, the writing short stories for the radio was a big uh product what was the culture that was being introduced to uh to uh to to us as as audiences then and a lot of them were leftists but you know Gaddafi hated them anyway so it was that that really human humanistic sort of flavor was there was on offer so it was part of the the, the zeitgeist or uh, but um, I don't think I bought much poetry, knew about Muzaffar and Nawab and Darwish and Nizakabani because of the songs. Uh, there was also a lot of um, uh, uh, folk poetry on the radio. And so that sort of, you go up with a sense of of rhythm, uh, a sense of like how words should be lined up. Yani, uh, so that was part of the the training. But no, I didn't really... Read much modernist, uh, modernist uh, poetry, uh, uh, Arabic modernist poetry. Darwish um, helped me in the sense of I wasn't, I didn't know how to write about our part of the world. You know, I, I was, you know, writing poems, and my sense of like what an English poem should be should be forests, shadows, stones, rivers. And we don't have any of these. Uh, yeah. <laughs> where I grew up <laughs> very few. a little forest, not river, no rivers at all. So with Darwish, it was like the sun, the jasmine. Just like, oh, yeah, no, you can actually write poems with these sort of symbols. So I began to translate him for myself. The early poems. I was, I went to Brooklyn, uh, Atlantic Avenue. There used to be a famous restaurant there called Tripoli so I Still had to have gone. yeah and uh, the shops near there and next to uh, um Kaltun cassettes there were mahmoud darwish books uh, i think from dar al aouda i said okay i sat down and i began to translate them and uh, uh, and, and i was drawn to lorca also, uh, Lorca's poet in New York because I loved surrealism. So just the 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 that Lorca and Darwish together for me uh, in uh, December nineteen eighty eight, Brooklyn is Lorca. That's the that's the big bang
0: for <laughs> reading translated
1: yeah. poetry.
0: So- yeah. And translating it. Well, I mean, I want to talk, I want to talk about translation because you, you know, you mentioned a few, in a few interviews, you mentioned Kabafi, Lorca, yeah. uh, Hilmat, uh, Vallejo, these are all, yeah. um, these are all translated, um, translated work where you're consuming it in English. Yeah. So, I want to ask you a question about translation.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, anytime I hear Somebody who works in translation, they don't describe themselves. And maybe I'm, I don't have a huge data set, but uh, humor me.
1: Mm-hmm. They
0: say I work as a translator. Uh-huh. They don't say I'm a translator. They say I work as a translator. I am a poet, but I also work as a translator. Yeah, is being a translator an identity for you? Is it like, oh, this is where I cut my, you know, th- I cut my teeth. I am a translator. I think like a translator. Or that's just. That's just the practice that's the where you practice to become a poet. Well, I
1: think people's hesitancy about being a translator first and putting the poetry second is uh because socially I mean, translators are are kind of uh sometimes, you know, even if you're even in, in a certain context, people want to push translators out. Sometimes when even when I'm trying to help somebody translate, they want to speak with their language to the other person. Thinking if I just tell them what I think in my language in Arabic, like they will understand me and we will understand each without the middleman. So there's a kind of a, a sense of translation as a as an unnecessary middle person, uh, and so it is. I mean, there there's a kind of a, a dismissal. There is often say, well, I'm reading this poem. This poem, it's not so good. Maybe there's something wrong in the translation. Uh, so they assume that the original. Is better, so if you're a translator you're you're not a person that's associated with origins, you are and you know nobody thinks of you as a necessary step, so it is it's a it's a fraught. uh, position uh, to be in, in some ways and it's not a highly appreciated position uh, in many ways, and so people might not want to. Uh, uh, occupy it. plus often people are creating their own work and there's a kind of a demotion oh you translate oh you're not the one who creates actual work and so so in a sense um, uh, uh, there is a, a I can see the hesitancy in that there are people who only translate there's a uh, do, who do not write if their own texts and, and they've done tremendous work for everyone. And I yeah. think those people are more comfortable with that position. But if you write your own original text and you translate, you want to sort of give primacy perhaps to your own work because, uh, you know, your, your creativity is very much important. I would have to say that uh, uh, maybe translation is, uh, when I meet translators, I always, I'm struck by their often generosity uh, translators, particularly translators of poetry say uh, can we publish your poem on this website? Sure any you publish anything you want. I'm so glad so there's you know there isn't any complications with that. And so translators enact generosity and they send extended because I think that's where it kind of comes comes and nobody forces you to translate poetry because there isn't that much demand. maybe translate a novel a publisher will come to you. But with poetry, you have to translate it, find the poet, translate it, and try to publish it. And you're doing all the work because you've loved this thing. And sometimes you sign a contract where that you get no money out of it. So it's a, a complete work of uh, of love. And, oh, uh, yeah. and I think translators know that about their work, but when it comes to sort of the social view of translation for in English and in Arabic, there really yeah. isn't much appreciation.
0: What was it? So, if I your first published uh, mm-hmm. translation was in '96. Um, yeah. Between sort of uh, between '96 and the the date of your first uh, your first uh, collection, mm-hmm. um, is what was the process like? What was actually happening in your brain? Um, um, well, it's interesting that the the
1: questions in the at new was a- Iraqi poet who had not published in a book in Arabic. He, he's a dias- Iraqi diaspora was living in Poland. Came to the United States. I read his poems, loved them. Uh, uh, met him, began to translate them and began to publish them. And I was also translating some Saadi Yusuf. And uh, so it, it really, I was just sitting down and doing the work. I really didn't think, oh, I'm translating and I have to do my poems. Uh, uh, it so happened that I was nearly done with my book and my MFA thesis when I was translating a uh, Hatif. so there didn't seem to be like a, a disruption uh, between them. But it's also it's like, OK, uh, what is the difference for a musician when they're playing Bach, a pianist or, or a cellist, and when they're actually trying to compose? I think the lines are probably blurring to each other, into each other. And so it's all music in many ways. It's all poetry and so when you're translating you're generating poetry Uh the other yeah. thing about translation is that uh you can i think you can translate under any condition it's very difficult to write a poem under any condition but you can translate it you could be sitting next to i happen to be sitting next to your father in a hospital he's kind of dozing off and you're translating you're on a train you're waiting for an airplane you can just translate and um uh, and, and, and be in the world of poetry with immediacy. Uh, so that's one of the, the great things about it. About well, the poets you mentioned, just for a quick, like, all of them were saying things in English that you did not find in contemporary American poetry or modern American. Vallejo, Vallejo was like this this poet on fire. There's nothing like like him. Cavafi's uh, 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 coolness, his, droning sort of seeming nonchalance, but also really depth and, uh, and restraint is also something you really didn't find in, in American poetry. So I gravitated toward them because they they wasn't in, Amer- in, in American poetry, but also because I wanted to sort of how is that world out there brought into English? And so in a sense I, I wanted to see translated poems because in a deep sense I was translating even though I was writing originally in English.
0: Yeah. There's this quote, that's Charlie, I think it's Charlie Parker or, or Coltrane. I'm not sure where he says, um, uh, in the beginning of your career, you need to learn all the rules. And once you finish learning all of them, forget a hundred percent of them. Yeah, um, yeah. and you know, like as a, as a jazz musician, you, you learn all the standards, you learn everyone's solos one by one, one by one by one. And then through that mm-hmm. you find yourself and then eventually yeah. you start composing, composing yourself. So I'm curious as you're going through this translation at the next to that hospital bed. Yeah. Are you finding your own voice through other people's work, do you think?
1: Um, You know, one of the best advice I got was never find your voice. Mm. Uh, that's, actually, we put this picture in the Philip Levine and if any American poet has a clear voice, always working class, Detroit, somebody's voice so distinguished, uh, but he struggled against it, I mean, but he just, he's just, don't don't find your voice, what does that mean, find you're gonna like, find your voice and, and shop, like, write a book with your voice, and then the next voice is gonna be the same, no, don't find your voice, keep experimenting, uh, keep uh, find, stretching your range, don't um, sort of uh, settle for one version of yourself, or a kind of poem that you want to write. And I, I think I took it to heart by right? my sense of my books of poetry, that each one of them is a is a, a different uh, experiment, formal content wise, uh, I wanted to do something different each time. And, uh, and so, uh, so that, that's how the books had sort of come through that each one of them is, is moved by a, a different, uh, you know, a different sort of concept.
0: Yeah, I was gonna ask you that. Um, with, with poetry collections, I'm always curious and sort of collections of short stories, I'm curious the, the boundaries of those collections, mm-hmm. how, they're, how they're really set. Um, and mm-hmm. if, if it is really one long collection with these mm-hmm. sort of artificial barriers between them, mm-hmm. but no, for you, you, you really see them as thematic mm-hmm. collections.
1: Uh, yeah. Um, uh, yes. I mean, I think in in uh, Tocqueville is kind of unusual because it has, you know, a kind of a big, big piece that's a lot of prose and some lyric yeah, and exactly. so on. And, that, uh, and so it has some poems uh, before and after. Uh, there are some PowerPoints. So there was a, a kind of a, a difference. I've never had like a big, big one uh, piece like that. Um, but I'm always actually working with the long sort of piece. I mean, even uh, Zodiac of Echoes has a, a long poem about television. The concept in that poem is that sort of based on 90s, early 2000s television viewing in which the poem tuned really, it's almost like each line is a switch in the of a channel. And I was really, you know, in America, you have cable, you watch the channels, but then once you come to the Arab world and see the assault on, uh, on perception that, um, that uh, satellite television has brought on the world, the sort of the non sort of all the smut that was coming in. So I wanted to capture all of that sort of clicking between. So that's why all the lines move where all of them are kind of uh, switching between channels. Uh, And uh, so, so, and I wanted to Again, in that poem, in that book also, I wanted to take account much more of a neighborhood I lived in, uh, of this places I lived in. I felt like uh, uh, it was some of it was preparation for Tocqueville. If, if Tocqueville is my American book, some of the sections in Zodiac of Echoes are like the American focus about being in Texas, about uh, uh, the news of the mayor in Columbus. Uh, all of that stuff was uh, training for um for uh for for tocqueville uh, in many ways
0: if we talk about um, uh, the most recent book, um, mm-hmm. what was your approach going into that? Um, that one really um,
1: it sort of found its uh, approach once um, there were two things i I began to sort of pay attention to the to the uh um prefects uh un like undocumented like illegal unemployed like it's just the whole this whole decade is the sort of the decade of un so i really want this the book of un you know unliberated unwhatever. whatever and uh so i wanted to and so that came really through uh when i began to think to to document the or at least think, visit and go and learn more about the, the Mediterranean, um, the Mediterranean crisis, the migrations that men are coming from Libya and, and reading more about them. Illegality Inc. was a great book that was, it talked about the, the, the West Africa uh, uh, sort of migration, how it began and, and and so on, how sort of like a new form of colonialism was operating There's Spanish police in the middle of Mali to make sure that people don't leave their cities. Uh, So all of that was really uh, enriching. And uh, so in many ways, I wanted to document the the decade. uh, uh, And I wanted to sort of intersperse the local in its deepest sense, the local of of the fact that I was living in Libya and I was uh, uh, you know, trying to sort of live a post-revolutionary life, but also we were here and we're worried about the water and Flint is happening and uh, and just sort of the the kind of the, the, the ruins, if you will, that were surrounding us in this decade. Among them, of course, is the increased number of people who are having to navigate moving from one place to another, seeking safety and seeking... Uh, um, seeking uh, home, if you will. So the the, uh, the word "an" un- is uh, uh, is. Un- but then I, I felt like I, I needed to address the the, the the Arab Spring from the Libyan prism to some extent. I needed to the environment. Just watching it seemed to be become a bigger sort of story. The rise of fascism in the West. Uh, all of these come together. so it is an attempt to um, to to capture the the decade to document, but also to emphasize th- that it's done in a lyrical fashion that I'm not writing documentary poetics I'm not uh, writing um, I didn't I didn't want to really be seen as writing a, a postmodern text. I wanted to be a, a harking back to a much more sort of lyrical uh, uh, approach, but uh, also strategically, uh, focus where a lot of that information is covered.
0: Yeah. You said, um, I felt like I needed to, or Mm -hmm. I don't know if you said, I felt, you said I I needed to respond to these things. Why did you need to, for who was this an internal uh, internal desire to make sense of it on the page or, or to, you know, unpack these emotions or are you, are you responding to somebody or you're hoping a specific group of people read, read this work?
1: Um, I don't know where that comes from exactly. Uh, uh, I think, I mean, there is, you know, there are, speaking of just sort of Darwish, there are some poems that Darwish, as a poet, or is like, here's an event I need to respond to. A lot of these poems he never put in books, which is interesting. Uh,
0: yeah, a poem,
1: interesting. Uh, uh, like uh, I was talking to somebody about a poem called Al-Qurban, which is about the, 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 the martyrs, the suicide uh, martyrs, and he never put it in a book, uh, as far as I know. Uh, some of his uh, uh, other poems in response to certain statements, he just, he didn't put them in a book. So these are the the poems that are of response. The, for me, um, so I guess documenting is, uh, is important, but also I think when you are in some ways, uh, I don't know writing in English or writing from a place where people don't hear a lot of news from. You are, uh, uh, you know, letting the world know. There is, I, I think, you you need because you are. I guess in some ways surrounded by misinformation, and you know from day one as an Arab or a Muslim third world uh, person, you are surrounded by misinformation, and you write in order to, you know, to sort of uh, emphasize your humanity, to tell a different story, to uh, to bring in a, an angle, a point of view where people can say yes, this is this is part of the human condition. Uh, Mm -hmm. at large. And you want to insert your experience as part of the human condition. I think that that's ultimately when I said that's what I needed to, it it comes from that, because that's the impulse. This can be misunderstood. This uh, is not known. That's what you want to bring in. Yeah, And you're not responsible for your life only. You you feel like you are responsible for a larger territory. And so in that sense, you're a, a dramatist for 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 events, you know, I'm not worried about myself getting in there. I always get myself in there. It's just that my concerns are are part of myself, and I try to bring those in as well.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about Libya a little bit. Um, I wanted to talk about Adonis as well. Um, Let's let's talk about Libya for a second, and then maybe we have time at the end. Um, What is your um, your sort of current? Um, mm-hmm. interaction with uh, folks in Libya right now, how much of your work do you feel like is being consumed and being read um, in in Libya? Uh, I I don't,
1: well, I've published two books in Arabic. I don't think they really, in Egypt, I don't think they made it much to Libya. Uh, so people know me, they sort of, I'm well, not, not many people know me, people know of me, uh, but yeah. they don't they've read me uh maybe they've read a few things about me here and there but no so i'm not really available in Arabic uh i've um, I, it's just not I, I think somebody has to take that project uh if, if they're or some I mean, a publisher might be interested in it. i can't really push myself into the Arabic language uh, in the way that i feel i have access in English and i want to publish so i feel like it's i got translated into into Spanish by somebody who loved the work and so in Arabic that, that hasn't happened yet uh but that's fine but what i've done as the picture shows is once after the revolution we myreem and i who's next to me we went and uh, started an arts ngo and we our job was to fill in the gaps partly there was a connection between international arts and in libya that was missing we wanted to fill that in we wanted to provide um some training to to uh, to the young Libyan artists, some mentorship, but also cinema. We did a cinema club and we showed 100 some 110 films, and uh, and that was sort of like because cinemas had not been in existence for nearly 25 years in Libya before the revolution, so it was really a kind of an intervention. to to update the scene to some extent and to welcome people who are interested in the arts, some young people who are interested in the arts. A lot of these people here are not artists, but they had come from the volunteer tradition and they helped us because they wanted to organize things. And I think they wanted to be associated with culture in one way or another because it enriched their lives and they did enrich our lives. So this was from a play, from a play of an enemy of the people that was directed by, uh, Nora Amin and her crew and uh, there wasn't a functioning theater so we built a tent this uh, hired this big plastic tent where the play took place and it was a kind of an amazing event I'd never imagined that I'm going to produce or host a play but there it was so I think about Libya is uh, uh, Walcott says when there is nothing everything can be done. And then in that sense, with Libya, even without all the hostility, when there wasn't much space, a lot could be done. And that was the great work in working with Libya and, and, and still great. is. So there are many opportunities that I'm glad that we are involved in with Libya.
0: That's wonderful. OK, I want to do the quick Q&A and then uh, there's questions in the chat. And then if we have time, we'll go back. Great. OK, so what are you reading or watching right now? I am
1: reading um, the Greek, Myths, white rage, and Ahmed zarouk was Zarakia, which is he's a, a saint from Libya, uh, a Sufi saint. I'm also just reading an article about how meditation causes psychosis. So, uh, all of you people who do doing transcendental meditation, beware.
0: <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the the meditation backlash has begun. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: I know how we... people in Lebanon need to calm down and, and to sort of, but but maybe meditation for more than 30 minutes a day is not how you should go.
0: Okay. Um, who would you love to shadow for a day, past or present?
1: Uh, I thought about this. I like these roving figures who were sort of milling around our area. Jamal Dina Afrani might be interesting. Shadyak, uh would be interesting. Uh, Ibn Khaldun would be interesting.
0: Yeah. What do people most misunderstand about your work?
1: Uh, I really don't know. Uh, I think Octavio Paz, I've been rewarded for many things, so I'm grateful. But Octavio Paz has also said awards are always based on a misunderstanding. So uh I would I would say that in every recognition I've received, there is a beautiful notion, but it's a slightly miscued, and it has it is there is a misunderstanding in it. So if you know just just <laughs> it sounds like I'm ungrateful, but you know, I'm as ungrateful as Octavio Paz is is that people, I mean, you feel like your life is more but they kind of hone in on one thing or another and well if this is what they want to recognize that's fine but you feel like you're maybe not as good as they say or uh, not limited to what they say and as far as saying thinking you're not as good as they say i never am as good as people think i am i don't feel it and so um, i take it i take um praise with 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 a grain of salt.
0: I like the idea of losing an award and saying you clearly don't misunderstand me enough. Um, <laughs> okay, so whose work do you admire or are inspired by? I'm sure there are lo- a long list, but if you were to choose one or two for people to check out,
1: uh, I think I mean I I'm trying to think of what I've um, more recent. I think I'm the the same the same. Poets that you mentioned, uh, yeah. I love John Berger's work. Um, uh, um, yeah, I, I'm. I think it's. It's. I come back to the in many ways to the to the same, to the same uh, sources. Um, I, um, in terms of music, uh, I would say, Coltrane is is an ideal and
0: uh, an inspiration always. You can't go wrong with Coltrane. Yeah. OK, Alina, um, you're up. Hi. Um, so in a lot of the writing that I read, memory is something that's very individualized and very specific. But I was wondering, like, how much does collective memory, whether that be national or familial, um, play a role in your work?
1: Um, a lot, but I I want to give it my own imprint. Um, so yeah, so I think I'm, you know, as I'm, I, I wrote about Mahmoud Darwish's ability to write in we writing in we sort of like the way he just took that as a very young poet we we we, and you say wow that's really a lot of responsibility, but I think in in maybe in fugitive atlas I I uh, I take that on. Uh, to some extent, because I do feel like a certain a certain divide uh, in the world, and uh, I position myself against the disadvantage one way or another. I, if, if if it is a collective, I I my sense is is always with the downtrodden, and I I, I can't say that I if if I were to speak, that's the we that comes more immediately, even though it's a it may not be a full reflection of my life.
0: Great, thanks yeah. Alina. Um Oz asked me to ask their question and the question is what are you writing or translating right now?
1: Uh I am revisiting my fiction uh which uh, is uh, is really like um like a garage full of bits and pieces uh you know an artist's garage so I'm revisiting that. I've translated, I've been translating a lot to Arabic uh for my the website called Qasaid lil Hayat or maybe not the last few months. Um, I've been visiting some of Saadi Yusuf's uh, poems. And most recently, there's a wonderful collection of little stories. I mean, it's called Mosim al-Hikayat by Khalifa al-Fakhri. He's not a very well-known Libyan writer, but that piece, it was like written in 1970 something, a really postmodern piece of twisting narratives and intertextual things that I've wanted to translate for a long time. And maybe, maybe I will get to it. So uh, it's one piece that I come back to uh, all the time and maybe eventually I'll translate it. So most of it, I get. the season of stories. Khalif al is uh, Great. Just uh,
0: read Afzal, you're up next. If something's wrong with the audio i'll ask the question it says who is your favorite poet among classical poets of arabic literature uh
1: i love the jahili poets i love Shanfaraz's uh, uh ode he was a saluk he's not one of the the uh al-qais' uh, is amazing so the, the muallaqat and a lot of the jahili poets are are, uh, are really my idea. I must say that I also need to read them in English translation to, to get them because the Arabic is just kind of makes my eyes blur. But um, uh, yeah. so the the Jehili poets.
0: Great. Uh, Nofa? Hey, how about
1: Nofa? Good to see you. Yeah, nice seeing you. So yeah. my question is, when I was reading Fugitive Atlas, I noticed that like the speakers would change and some of the experiences that the poems discuss are not experiences that you've lived through yourself. So yeah. for example, like the poem Face, right, where it discusses like the Iraqi war and the soldiers and all of that. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering how do you navigate the space between presenting experiences that you haven't gone through yourself mm-hmm. without like taking up space or misrepresenting
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, those experiences? Yeah. Um. I guess in that sense, um, I I put on my dramatist hat, and that's you know um, know, playwrights do that; they create characters that are not themselves. And so, in that sense, these are coming from impulse. I read as much as I can, uh, and I try to learn as much as I can. And so, there's maybe my voice. There's a there's also a theory called the third voice by which is a T. S. Eliot's. a notion whereby there is a voice that sort of can't be accounted for, and I've allowed that to sort of come in, uh, and to speak in the poems. Um, I don't, I mean, I, I'm, I try to be as historically accurate and as emotionally sort of accurate as well, but um. I, you know, I feel like that's the impulse of the of the the dramatist or the novelist. We're always writing in voices and in characters we're not ourselves. It seems like there's more pressure on the poets to be sort of to be more uh, accurate. But I think all of the arts, you know, we would never be able to see a movie if it, if it were if if the artists were not allowed to imagine what other people would say or experience and so on. But I would say I I read a great deal. I try to read as much as possible. And in the same way that you, uh, Mohanad, Mikey was talking about um, learning all the rules and then forgetting them, uh, in some ways you learn all the facts about something as much as possible. But then in order to create something from them, it has to be uh, a kind of a composite of what you've learned. It has to be sort of become organic. And so I guess it's just true to the facts uh, but, uh, but as far as the creative impulse to 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 create a voice is always there, and I, I don't feel like I we wouldn't have art if we suppress it.
0: Thanks so much, Nada. Uh, thank you Khaled, for the, the presentation. Um, my question uh, is linked to kind of the work that you've been doing in Libya, um, mm-hmm. and how you felt that the art scene has changed in the past um, 10 years or so, not sort of just you know um by itself because i don't like this habit of of people tending to act as though libyan art began after 2011 um but rather in comparison to kind of the much the much wider history of libyan um arts um movements in general how do you feel it's 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 changed uh
1: thank you Neda. It's good to see you i i think uh, things have changed because the actual lack of care for the arts uh, in libya is just sort of is really now on the you know the 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 Ministry of Culture and the uh, and the censors were were kind of working together during Qaddafi's time. Now neither one of them works very well. <laughs> so, in a sense, that's sort of a, a blessing. But I mean, I think the fact that there are NGOs in Libya uh, acting—they're oh, suppressed. Okay, we put out a book in 2017, and you know with the backlash that came out of that, and and uh, the Salafis were going to hit us with a fist of iron. Uh, and, and it was it was dangerous. I mean, Leila Mughrabi and Taha had to leave. Uh, her husband had to leave Libya in 2017 and, and they've not come back, or at least she hasn't come back. So it is dangerous, not because of the government, because of the people and the, the extremists. But there are NGOs that are working. The uh, Tenerut and and Razi worked for several five years at least, and then they're being uh, suppressed. But it's it's organic and it's not supported by the government. And it's the people's activism. So in, a, in many ways, it's like the cultural sector was uh, on its own trying to do its best with its own resources. And um, people are publishing without much support. Uh, people are writing, the, you know, uh, with some the, a new novelist in uh, Najwa bin Chetwan emerged uh, pretty much after the revolution, published before, pretty much after. So I think the, the 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 actual producers of culture in Libya have, because they're neglected, they have more more freedom. We we're just talking to a group called Fasila, and they on their own in Tripoli started a. Um, An organization to do workshops to teach people to write stories they're working through the pandemic, not that the pandemic is even a reality in Libya. So uh, people are doing their own work, and it is as diverse as I can imagine it to be so. um, So yeah, so there is a kind of renaissance uh, because people are coming in without the usual obstacles. Even even the generational obstacles are not there. Used to be, if you were a poet, you had to kind of suck up to the older poets or whatever. Now you don't really have to do any of that. All of that is gone. And the old, for older folks are still, has uh, been very active. These are all 60s and older, and they're holding monthly events and so on. So um, it's not a big sector. But there are a lot of genuine and uh, open uh, activities that are happening within a conservative society, of course. But So I, I think I'm, I'm optimistic about it. And I think there is a realization among the, a lot of sectors that culture is the way to go, because if you're going to bring this country together, It is its culture. It's not their tribal affiliations. The the only way that can bring Libyans together is an an invented, but also historically valid notion of having a unified culture. And that's what these scopes are trying to do.
0: There's a question about- One last question uh, through the wire from Nathalie.
1: Hello. I'm not sure if you can see me. Um, hello, Dr. Khaled. Sorry, I was a bit late to uh, join the conversation, but I'm, I'm happy I caught uh, like the,
0: the the end of it. Uh, I have a question. I would like to hear a bit your interpretation on the poem, The Cypress Book by uh, Mahmoud Darwish, because we're working uh, on an exhibition right now. And this is like, if you want, the central piece of information. So I just wanted to get a bit your thoughts on it. And we're kind of linking it to... The, the tension and the like the big blast you know that affected
1: beirut i just felt it was uh, it truly really relates to a lot of things that uh, the country is going through today what is the poem again the cypress broke
0: i don't know if you're familiar with it
1: no i think it's it's in the 90s um i think is it from the i believe so so I'll have to find it. I'm sorry, I can't respond to that. But ah. if you email me and and and, and ask me about it, I'll be yeah, happy I'd
0: to. love to. Yeah. Okay, that would be great. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Tocqueville PowerPoints. Um, I, you know, I didn't know how to use PowerPoints when I wrote these poems, and I wanted to uh, write poems based on that structure. But it was really a way to use the full uh, uh, sort of media, sort of uh, explanatory medium as a way of talking in poetic terms. So it's a bit of a ruse, but it was also a way to bring different elements and to take a a kind of a technological authority that I didn't have.
0: I love it. Okay, everybody, we just hit the hour. um, And uh, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We have new episodes coming every single week. Make sure you follow us on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. You can find us at afikara.com for information about all upcoming events. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot. See you next time and stay curious.